So we spent now two weeks studying Saul. And if anything's clear, it's that Saul's unprepared to be king of Israel. As a replacement for God, of course he'd be unprepared. No one can protect God's people like God can. No one can judge as wisely or care as compassionately or guide as carefully as God can. But this just isn't a matter of relative disqualification. Saul is perhaps the least qualified man in Israel to assume the throne. Saul was raised in the seat of Israel's darkest corruption. He is tall and wealthy and rich and handsome, rarely characteristics of the humble. He is a bad shepherd and he's wholly ignorant of the work and the ways of God. Saul is to a spectacular degree unqualified to lead God's people. It's actually a perfect time. And yet, God's relentless, unstoppable work of mercy unfolds regardless. Because the Lord is always at work to rescue His people, always. Because the Lord will use any and every means to prepare His people for the true King of Israel. And so the Lord uses Saul, the replacement king, unprepared as he may be. You know, sometimes God uses men and women who are awful to do good things. And that's a tough thing for me to wrap my mind around. But that's precisely what we see happening right here in this passage. God is at work in the life of Saul. He speaks with him. He gives him another heart. The Spirit falls on him in a fit of prophecy. Things are happening to Saul that signal for us that God is working. Now, I want to stop for a moment here. Because it's not difficult to get confused when we talk about the Spirit. Especially when we talk about how the Spirit moves in people. More than a few, myself included, have read this passage and drawn conclusions that missed the mark because of the way that the Spirit moves upon Saul. So we're going to have to take a look closely and pay attention to the details to get a bit of context. But before we do that, I want to briefly explore the story of a prophet named Balaam. Balaam spoke with God directly. He heard from God. He prayed to God And he was also an enemy of God. Balaam was a Moabite. And the Moabite people were hell-bent on the destruction of the freed sons of Israel. So the king of Moab sent to Balaam, knowing that he spoke to God. He sent to him and asked him to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam checked with God to see if that was okay. But God said no. And perhaps that would have been the end of it. But riches and honor were promised to Balaam if he'd only just go with the king. So Balaam waited for God to change his mind. Now, that made God angry, but he gave Balaam what he wanted. He said, you know what? Go with him on one condition. You can go, but you're only permitted to do what I say you can do. And you're only permitted to say what I say you can say. 
So he does. He goes and he convenes with the king of Moab on the mountaintop overlooking the freed sons of Israel. And three times he blesses the people of God. He doesn't curse them at all. He blesses them. Because that's what God told him to do. So for a moment, you might believe that Balaam was an ally. Because through him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the people of God were prophetically blessed. The power of God was working through Balaam. And God sent the Spirit to teach him what to say and to speak to him and to prophesy over the people through him. So it wouldn't be irrational to think that Balaam was an ally of the people of God. But we learn one more thing about Balaam before the story of the Exodus ends. You see, the king of Moab was just determined to work treacherously against God's people. So Balaam, this man who speaks with God, this man who has felt the rushing wind of the Spirit, and who has spoken the very words of God, this Balaam gives the king of Moab some advice. Send them idols, he says, and sex. If there's one way to ruin God's people, it's through the seduction of sin. You see, Balaam was a wicked man who worked actively to ruin the people of God. He was an enemy of God. Years later, he would become an archetype for the type of men and women who worked to seduce the people of God through idols and sex. In Micah and in Second Peter and in Revelation, God warns His people not to follow in the way of Balaam. Now the reason I bring up Balaam is to remind you that the movement and work of God is not a stamp of approval. God does what He wants. And He works sometimes through corrupt men. And sometimes that means that he's rescuing these sinful men and grafting them into the people of God. But sometimes it doesn't mean that. Sometimes God works through wicked men and their tools in his hand. And when they've served their purpose, he allows them to remain in their sin. To pursue the idolatry that has corrupted their hearts. That's an important reminder, I think, because we're about to read about Saul and the Spirit. God's movement in the life and heart of Saul is unmistakable, as we will see. But Saul does not love God, and he does not serve God's people, as we will see. Saul is an active ingredient in God's rescue of Israel, and he is also actively working against God's plan. So why don't we get into it? Turn with me to 1 Samuel 10, verse 14. So, when we left off last week, one thing was crystal clear. God is at work. Despite the people, despite the demands for a replacement, God is speaking and He is working. And His sovereign power is on display. Saul will become king because God has made it so. God's message to Samuel is clear and God's message through Samuel to Saul is clear. Saul will be king. And Saul will protect God's people. And he will do so because God has decreed it. And he will do so because God's power will work it. 
And what's interesting is that God seems to go out of his way to tell Saul what's going on. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes God uses men and women and they have no clue. But not here. God is speaking to Saul. And he's making it clear to Saul that Saul's kingdom is something that God has established. He has chosen Saul and he will move through Saul. God's power is at work and God seems intent on letting Saul know it. Now I'm repeating myself over and over again. And I'm doing it on purpose because you'll need to keep this in mind. This is a moment of particularly clear revelation so that Saul can't help but understand that he'll be king and that this is God's work. God has made it so. So that any movement to run away from that work is itself a movement to run away from God. All right, is everybody at 10, 14? Let's read together. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said to him, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Okay, so this is unexpected. Saul returns home after what, it, what would have been an unbelievable, life-changing weekend, right? But he says next to nothing about Samuel's message to him. And the text makes it clear that Saul is actively avoiding any mention of the kingdom. He isn't told to do this. He just does it. And when you read that, you should start asking questions. Why? Why Why not? This is a big deal. You obviously didn't forget about it. Why not? Why not mention the kingdom at all? What is he thinking about? Keep reading. Now, Samuel called the people together to the, uh, to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clans of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, Look, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulder upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. 
Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid them up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Okay, so before we get into what Saul does here, let me make a quick comment about what Saul doesn't do. Take a look back at verse 7. This is not anything we just read, but something we read last week. Read verse 7 with me. After Samuel anoints Saul as king of Israel, just before he's sent away, Samuel gives one more bit of instruction. Listen to this. Now when the signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. Then go before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, so Samuel asks Saul to stick around in Gilgal for seven days. After seven days, Samuel would arrive and tell him what to do next. But we don't see that happen. Do we? Saul encounters all the signs that Samuel told him to expect, for sure. But at that point, where you'd expect to read, so Saul went down there, from there to Gilgal, and he waited seven days. You don't read that, do you? So we're in an odd position at this point. Because we don't have any record of Saul actually doing what Samuel told him to do. These are God's instructions. (laughs) To wait patiently for seven days. And this could mean two things. One, either Saul obeyed these instructions and the author didn't feel it was necessary to include the details of their later conversation. But this doesn't seem to fit. Because the author seems to record the details of Saul's and Samuel's interactions with painstaking detail. He records the long process of Saul's search for Samuel, Samuel's words when they met, their meal together, what Saul ate, (laughs) where Saul slept when he was Samuel's guest, their conversation before he left Ramah, their conversation while he was leaving Ramah, and the details of Saul's departure from Ramah as he encounters the signs that Samuel foretold. Samuel's prophecy over Saul is literally the longest speech of Samuel's recorded in the Bible. So you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that the author chose not to include the details of this later meeting in the interest of, you know, preserving space or time. The only other option that I can think of is that Saul chose to ignore Samuel's instructions to wait for him. That, if it's true, foreshadows something significant that we're going to talk about in a couple months. But that would make sense right now, right? Because watch what happens. When asked what Samuel said, he lies. And, and then when the people gather together to select a king, he hides in the luggage. He's running. 
At every opportunity, he's running from the work of God. So when we read this story, we get a striking juxtaposition. Samuel and Saul both know the will of God. Indeed, they're the only ones who know the will of God. Yet Samuel and Saul react to the will of God in opposite ways. On the one hand, Samuel embraces that will. Though it means that the people have rejected him, he works toward the fulfillment of the will of God. But on the other hand, Saul rejects God's will. He runs away from it, terrified of what it will mean for him. Samuel is an ally of God, a servant of God. Saul is an enemy of God, an opponent of God. When asked about the coming king of Israel, Samuel speaks willingly and enthusiastically and he anoints and kisses the coming king. And he foretells of the rescue of God's people. When Saul is asked, though, he lies and he runs and he hides. Saul is a coward. And he's terrified of the work of God because he doesn't know or trust God. And so when we turn to this scene, which is a significant moment in the history of Israel, wherein the last judge of Israel is announcing the first king of Israel, and the people are waiting there in eager anticipation This is everything they wanted and everything they asked for. And rather than grandeur and and majesty and ceremony, we get a picture of cowardice and fear and humiliation. Very clearly, the the king of Israel is a joke. Where where is he? I mean, this is a funny passage. Everybody's like, where where is he? And they actually have to go to God and ask, is where, where's Saul? <laughs> they looked so hard that they had to turn and ask God where Saul was and he was hiding in the baggage. Rather, you get this picture of cowardice and fear and humiliation and you get this picture of the disappointment of the people of Israel and then there's that question. How can this man save us? The answer to that question is simple. He can't. This this guy is terrified. He doesn't know God. He doesn't trust God. So when God says to him, I'm going to move through you to protect my people and you'll stand up to your oppressors and you'll defeat armies by my power. When he hears that, he doesn't believe that God is able He doesn't believe that God is strong enough, so he's terrified and he runs and hides. So the answer to that question, how can this man save us, is simple. Unless something changes, he can't save us. He is powerless and he is terrified and he is cowering in the luggage. He's a coward and in him we have no hope. That's the answer to that question. Let's look back for a moment. I want to reread one portion of this story. When he stood among the people, 
just after cowering in the luggage. They, they grab him and shove him up on the stage. And we stand among the people. He was taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. None like him among all the people. This story stops for a moment to highlight Saul's height. And Saul comments, look, there's none like him among all the people. Now, when the scriptures do things like this, you have to ask questions because we already know how tall Saul is. It was one of the first things we learned about him. So why here? Why repeat it here? Why make a note of it just at this moment? Think back. Who else is tall in the Bible? Moses isn't noted as tall. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, none of them are particularly tall, or at least not that we're told. In fact, tall isn't ever really a noteworthy characteristic of the people of God. But do you remember when the people of Israel, freed slaves, come from Egypt and cross the Jordan. What did they say about the pagan nations? They said, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants everywhere. Look at them, they're huge. The nations. The nations are tall. Goliath is tall. The men of Jericho were tall. There's real irony in this moment because at face value, it looks as if Samuel is noting that Saul is set apart among the people of God. That somehow he's qualified to be king because he stands head and shoulders over the people. But that's not what hap- what's happening here. Samuel's words mean something else. Something cutting. Remember, this is, this is right after he's just prophetically rebukes the people for rejecting God for a king like the nations. Just on the heels of that, he says, look at your king. There's none like him among the people. What he's really saying is God has given you exactly what you asked for. You want a king like the nations? Here's your king, just like the nations. He looks like the nations. He behaves like the nations. How can this man save us? How can this man save us? That's a good question. But it isn't, is it the right question right here at this moment for these people? Because the text says, some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him. So what's wrong with their disposition at that moment? What's wrong with that question for them in that moment? That sort of hopelessness. Look, never in the history of Israel has a man been capable of serving. Never has a man been capable of saving. Never has a man been capable, powerful enough, kind enough, compassionate enough, wise enough to save the people of God. Never. 
Always it's been God who does the saving using broken vessels. So the text calls these men worthless because they're not merely evaluating Saul's cowardice. They're expressing hopelessness in the work of God. And that's a problem. Because God has never stopped working through broken vessels to rescue His people. Never. Keep reading. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said, Give us seven days respite that we might send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Stop. Just for a minute. Stop reading. What do you expect from Saul right now? This is that Saul who we just saw running terrified from his calling. This is that Saul who we just found hiding, cowering in the luggage. What do you expect from that Saul just at this moment? Fear, right? Trembling and terror and running and hiding. That's what you should expect. Because Saul has exhibited nothing like courage to this point. No might, no valor, only fear and hopelessness and faithlessness. Okay, keep reading. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of his messengers, saying, Who does not, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were about 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to messengers who had come, Thus shall you you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp by the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? 
bring these men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. One variable changed. One. When Saul hears the news of a mighty enemy raging against the people of God, one variable changed. Saul didn't center himself. He didn't take a deep breath. He didn't summon his courage. Saul didn't surround himself with encouraging people. He didn't psych himself up. He didn't down a can of spinach like Popeye. One variable changed that made this coward rise up and summon the people of God for a mighty act of vengeance. One, the Spirit. The Spirit is the answer. The Spirit of God is the answer. The Spirit of God is the hope of Israel. The Spirit gives life to dead hearts. The Spirit gives courage to the faint of heart. The Spirit rises up in defense of the people of God when the people of God themselves shrink in fear. Oh, what a Spirit. He moves through broken vessels to rescue the people of God. Oh, what a Spirit. He rescues the broken and He sweeps away the wicked. Praise God who gives the Spirit to rescue His people. Saul was nothing before the Spirit arrived. He had the trappings of majesty, sure. Wealth, beauty, stature. But inside, he was a coward. Terrified of people. Terrified of armies. Terrified of the plans of God. Terrified. But when the Spirit rushes upon him, he is might and valor and hope personified. When the Spirit rushes upon him, he demands justice for the people of God. He exhibits mercy towards the people of God. He is the protector of the people of God and he glorifies the God of Israel for salvation. All that because the Spirit rushed upon him. The Spirit is the hero of the story. Saul is nothing and the Spirit is everything. It is the Spirit of God that the people of God desperately need. There's a good answer to that question. How can this man save us? By the Spirit. That's the answer. The Spirit of God will save us. Moving powerful through this, through this broken man. The people of Israel desperately need this Spirit. And we desperately need this Spirit. The cowardice of Saul is off-putting, isn't it? We read, you know, from like 
40,000 feet high altitude with 20-20 vision. So when we read of Saul, the rich and powerful, and when we read that he cowers in fear, hiding in the luggage, faithless and hopeless, when we read these things, it's easy to go, God, Saul, Saul, Saul. After so many displays of the mercy and kindness of God, really, Saul? Generation upon generation amounting evidence that God will never give up and He will never forsake His people. Really, Saul? Are you going to hide in the luggage? But this is us, isn't it? Who have been ignoring the mounting evidence of God's faithfulness. It's me and you. We were in Saul's place, running away from the work of God, fleeing in fear, despite the testimony of our beating hearts. We were born, me and you, we were born into this cowardice, weren't we? If you're in Christ, you know this, don't you? No man in this room, no woman in this room is better than wretched Saul. Not a one of us. We are, all of us, corrupted and proud, yet terrified and cowering. That's who we were. And if you're not in Christ, that's who you are. That's who we were, blind and arrogant and terrified. An inconsistent cocktail of rebellion. But for the Spirit of God, we were lost. Right? It is the Spirit who moved through the prophets to stir the hope of the people of God. It is the Spirit who pleads with us through the Scriptures to hope in the coming Christ. We first hoped in the coming kingdom because the Gospel was spoken in power by the Spirit. The Spirit grafted us into the people of God because of the work of Christ. The Spirit releases us from the crushing burden of the law. In the Spirit, we are free and we are alive. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. God will give life to our mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in us. It is through the Spirit that God's love has been poured out on us. The Spirit gives us joy in the Gospel. And He makes us zealous to preach the Word of Christ even in the face of persecution and death. This is the work of the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit of God and are therefore sons of God. We are sealed with the Spirit and that seal is a promise of a breathtaking inheritance. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, groaning on our behalf in prayer. The Spirit teaches us the deepest thoughts of God. The Spirit gives gifts to the church by empowering individual believers like you and me to serve by His power. By the Spirit, we who were lost now cry, Abba, Father, to the Creator of the universe. Because we are no longer slaves, but sons. Praise God. What a Spirit. Like Saul, we were lost and we were blind and we were terrified. And when the Spirit of God rushed upon us, we were filled with hope and our eyes were opened and we chased after Christ with zeal. We have no hope without the Spirit of God. And we still need the Spirit because the terror that crippled Saul yet looms, tempting us to cower in the baggage 
right? There's a moment in the early church when a few of the apostles are beaten and their lives are threatened because of the message about Jesus. Let me read to you what they did when they were released and when they were tempted to run and hide. When the apostles were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. These men and women were Christians. And they were alive in the Spirit of God. They were in Christ and they had been given the Spirit. And yet in this moment, they found themselves broken and hurting and afraid. And at this moment, the luggage was likely looking pretty comfy right about now. But instead of cowering in fear like Saul did, they turned to God and asked for the Spirit. And the Spirit rushed upon them and they ran back to the front lines. They rose up and they were champions of the gospel because they prayed and the Spirit fell in power. You have homework this week. I'm going to grab a tissue again. Two jobs. If you can do it every day, do it every day. If you can do it three times a day, do it three times a day. Doesn't just have to be for this week. You can do it this week and forever for the rest of your life. But certainly do it this week. Your commission is to praise God for the promise and the seal and the power of the Spirit. And that has meant everything for you. But for the Spirit, we were lost. Like Saul, lost and blind and arrogant and terrified and cowering. But then the Spirit came. If you're in Christ, the Spirit came. And you were made zealous for the kingdom of God. It was the Spirit's work. The Spirit came and set your hope on the kingdom. What a Spirit. He has earned your praise. Homework number one, 
Praise God for the work of the Spirit that empowers cowards like me and you. Homework number two. Knowing that terror looms, knowing that there are things that genuinely scare us and that would have us cowering in the baggage, be honest with yourself. There are things that you are afraid of. Rather than cowering in the baggage, turn to God in prayer. Ask Him that you would walk in the fullness of the Spirit, boldly proclaiming the coming kingdom, even though our culture hates us and it will cost us. Please, ask, this, ask God to send His Spirit to rush upon this body that we might proclaim the beauty and love of Christ without fear in our community. Praise the Spirit. Pray for the Spirit. Tonight, tomorrow, the next day. But for the Spirit, we would have nothing. Oh, that the Spirit would move in power among us to deliver good news to captives. It is by the Spirit that we do these things. And it is by the blood of Christ that we have the Spirit. So there's no better reason to come and celebrate at the table. So let's do that.